0: Please grab your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter twenty-six. As I, as we were praying this morning, I was one of my silent prayers was for just praising God for the the men in this church that have stepped up to lead. Uh, just you see it here week in and week out, and I just want to uh, thank you, men for for being willing to do that. Really appreciate you. Please bow and pray with me. Holy Spirit, I ask that you descend and take me away. Come forth and speak to your people. Convict and challenge and encourage and show how much you love them through your word. We depend on you, Holy Spirit, to to do the work here. Not my pleading, but yours. Not my words, but yours. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. In 1976, when I was about 10 years old, Hurricane Bell came through Connecticut, where I lived at the time. Although it was a major hurricane when it was down near the uh, near the Carolinas, as it came north, as hurricanes do, it kind of weakened a little bit. And by the time it made landfall in Connecticut, uh, the winds were about sustained 80, 75, 80 miles an hour. I remember as uh, the storm approached, the intensity approached, and, and the trees began to sway, and branches began to break. and and then, But then all of a sudden, it slowly went away, and the sun came out. And I remember my mother took me by the hand and took us out onto the lawn, and we looked up in a cloudless sky that was moments before raging and storming. And she described to us where we were. We were in the eye of the storm. With, with storm and rain and clouds on one side preceding it and storm and rain and clouds coming after it. We spent a few moments outside and then she took us by the hand and led us back in just as the storm moved back in. The rain began to fall and the wind began to howl and the storm was raging once again. But for those few moments we were outside, it was perfectly calm. It was serene on either side of the storm. In our text today, that's where Jesus is. He's kind of in the eye of the storm. We're in a calm and serene place in the upper room. Behind him is the confrontation with the Pharisees. And in front of him... Looms the cross. But for these few verses, we're in the calm. Look with me at verse 17, starting in chapter 26. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city and a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after the other, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes, as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for him than the man if he had never been born. Judas Iscariot, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after he blessed it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee." Jesus answered him, uh, Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So there's a ton going on in this passage. You can just look at it and see that we have the preparation for the Passover. We have the betrayal of Judas Iscariot, which is huge. We have the prediction that the disciples will all flee from from Jesus. And of course, we have that, that prediction that Peter, of course, will deny Christ three times. We have also the institution of the Lord's Supper here. So this morning, I'd like to approach this text by looking at three, not four in your notes, three truths that are contained in this passage. And the first one is, this passage is saturated with sovereignty. This passage is saturated with sovereignty. James Russell Lowe in Heirlooms writes this, I take great comfort in the sovereignty of God. He would never have let us get to the matchbox if he had not known first that the framework of the universe was fireproof. Don't you love how he puts that? God's sovereignty makes what's going on fireproof. It's true here, it's true in your lives. This text is full of lit matches, if you will. You look and you see the betrayal of Judas here. You see the desertion of the disciples. You see Peter that is going to deny him three times. It looks like all these things are out of Jesus' control. All these things are unraveling. Yet each is firmly in the grip of God's sovereignty. You see it here in the text. Look at verse 25. uh, Judas had went and already given gotten his 30 pieces and he asks Jesus if it is him and Jesus knows it's him. Yes, it is you, Judas. The sovereignty in Jesus' sovereignty, he knows that the disciples are going to desert him. We're going to see that next week with the Garden of Gethsemane. They flee. Yet Jesus sovereignly knows this. We see it here in verse 33. When Peter says, I'll never, ever, ever, ever leave you. How many times have we said that? I'll never, ever, ever sin again in that way. Yet it's firmly in God's sovereignty. Jesus is sovereign over all of these things that look like like lit matches, that look like it's unraveling, that it's not in control. This is out of control, Jesus. No, it's totally in control. Even the Passover location. Look with me at verse 18. He says there go into the city and a certain man to a certain men and say to him the teacher says my time is at hand I'll keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Jesus sovereignly knows exactly the man in the house where he will celebrate the Passover. He knows that in his sovereignty. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is still sovereign even in the Incarnation. Everything that happens is within Jesus' sovereign will and plan. And that should be a great comfort for us. As we look at our own lives, that should be a great comfort for us. British pastor and evangelist Alan Redpath wrote this, There is nothing... No circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until, first of all, it has gone past God and past Christ right through to me. If it has come that far, it has to come with great purpose, he writes, which I might not understand at the moment, but as I refuse to become panicky, as I lift my eyes up to him and accept it from coming from the throne of God, No sorrow will ever disturb me. No trial will ever disarm me. No circumstance will cause me to fret. For I shall rest in the joy of what my Lord is. And that what he is is sovereign. So, brothers and sisters, God is sovereign over the good and bad in your life, he is sovereign over your plan to move or to stay. He is sovereign over the good catch and the bad. He is sovereign over your promotion or your pink slip. He is sovereign over the peaks and valleys in your marriage. He is sovereign over the salvation of your children. He is sovereign over your life and your death, your health and your well-being. Your life is saturated with the sovereignty of God. And that is a comforting truth. That should be a comforting truth in good times, but especially in bad times. Secondly, we see in this passage, it is overloaded with encouragement. This passage is overloaded with encouragement. Let me ask you a question. Where do you look for spiritual encouragement? When you are downtrodden, when you're struggling spiritually, where do you go? Well, certainly we would go to scripture, right? Certainly maybe, maybe the Psalms, the, the, the balm of Gilead of the Psalms. We would certainly run to prayer, right? So well, we, we would certainly lean into the body of Christ. For that's one of the great purposes that God has given for the body of Christ, for your church body. You lean into them, not out as our flesh wants. You lean in. If you're married, you'd certainly go to your spouse. Perhaps the wisdom of a good friend. If you have a mentor, you'd spend time with them. But have you ever thought of looking to the Lord's table for spiritual encouragement? Have you ever thought about that? I'd like to suggest that you do. Because that is part of why Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper, communion, the Lord's table. Look with me at verse 26. He says there that as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after he blessed it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. I want to tell you right now that the disciples were startled by what Jesus just said there. They were gobsmacked because for 1,500 years after the, the, the head of the table broke the bread and gave it he would say, this is the bread of the affliction that our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. The bread of the Passover meal was to represent the the, the leaving of of Egypt, of leaving the, the bondage of slavery and the haste with which they made into the wilderness. So when Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body, he was radically radically changing the association that we are to make with the bread. First, the association would no longer be to their affliction, it would be to his affliction. Peter was inspired to write to the scattered Christians in Turkey, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. Jesus took in his body the affliction that we all deserve. Perhaps there's no greater single verse in the Bible that, that, that distills down what this is more than 1 Corinthians 5.21, which reads, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the absolute heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ right there, brothers and sisters. That's the heart. It's about the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. And that's what the bread represents. His payment, not ours. His suffering, not ours. His condemnation, not ours. His life given, not ours. His, his life in exchange for ours. The Lord's Supper is a constant reminder that we are not under any condemnation anymore. You know, many of us love Romans 8. Romans 8 has been called the the Mount Everest of the New Testament. It's wonderful. You know how it starts. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are found in Jesus Christ. And it goes on for verse after verse after verse to just reinforce that. No condemnation. And we read that and we love that. But when we take that bread and we rip it off the loaf, there's something visceral there that we're we're reminding ourselves that this is what Jesus did for me. That that was his body torn apart and not mine on the cross. When we take that bread and we put it in our mouth and we crush it with our teeth, we're reminded of Isaiah 53 that he was crushed for our iniquity. That's the association, the first association. He is radically changing. The second association to the bread would no longer be the freedom from slavery in Egypt, but the freedom from slavery to sin. We are freed from the slavery that we were under of sin. Recently, a Nigerian high court acquitted a man who was in prison of all the charges against him. But instead of of being jubilant over being released, this inmate ran back to the prison. He was intercepted by a prison guard who reminded him that, that he was now free to go home. But he demanded to be let back into the prison, into his cell. According to eyewitnesses, it took the efforts of over six prison guards to pull him away from the door to the prison. Brothers and sisters, that story shouldn't sound so strange. Because that's how our flesh is towards sin. It's drawn back into it. We're we're proclaimed free, and yet we return to the prison cell over and over. We all have a little bit of that Nigerian man in us. Each time we eat the bread, we should be reminded of what Paul wrote in Romans 6 Though you used to be slaves to sin, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. But the question then becomes in all of our minds we sit back and we go, where does that kind of power come from? How? Where is it? I'm, I want to run back to prison. I want to run back to that sin. And that's the association, the third association that Jesus makes here. The association of the bread would no longer be for the nourishment of the Jews in the wilderness. It would be for our nourishment in the wilderness of life. The bread the Jews baked in such haste and leaving Egypt was not uh, filled with yeast and they didn't have time to let it work it through the dough and let it rise and proof. So they just baked bread without yeast, in haste, getting out of Egypt. And they took it with them to physically nourish them in the wilderness to sustain them on their journey. And that is what the bread of the Lord's Supper does for us, except spiritually. It spiritually nourishes us for our journey in the wilderness of this life. Ligan Duncan, the Chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminary, writes this, The Lord's Supper is spiritual nourishment. It is a means of grace. It's one of God's appointed ways by which he builds up and nourishes us, confirms our faith, and strengthens us to grow. Puritan Richard Baxter adds to that and says, the Lord's Supper applies to our souls the benefits of redemption, drawing us to the Son, communicating light and life, and strength from him to us. Brothers and sisters, I would put to you that there is something more going on here every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper than just a remembrance. There is a spiritual transaction going on here. You are being spiritually nourished by faith. I want to plead with you to look to the Lord's Supper for encouragement and spiritual when you're spiritually downtrodden. If you're walking in the valley of the shadow of death, Right now, anticipate this grace. If you're spiritually weary, be eager to come to the table. If you are in a season of doubt, look to the table to confirm your faith. Now, I want to be very clear. There's no power in the element itself. That's, that's Catholic theology. There's no power in the bread. But as we come to the table in faith, meaning you believe that Christ died for your sins, meaning that you believe the, with the promise of this table of spiritual nourishment, the Holy Spirit uses this. To nourish you. To encourage you spiritually. To firm your faith up. Strengthen you spiritually, like the bread in the wilderness. Because we need this kind of strength through this pilgrimage in this wilderness that we're in. The last thing I want us to notice in this text is it's heavy with hope. It's heavy with hope with hope. It's been said that there are five directions that you should look in when you come to the Lord's table. Five directions. Back, up, in, around, and forward. You should be looking back, in, up, around, and forward. We should first be looking back. If you look I think it's covered with the cloth right now, but if you look at the front of our communion table and most communion tables, what does it say? In remembrance of me, right? That's the first thing that we should be doing as we approach the table. Looking back. Remembering Jesus and his sacrifice. That's the time in the service when we do this. Specifically. When we recall the gospel to mind. When we recall his sinless life. When we recall his, his substitutionary death, his life for mine. When we recall his life-giving resurrection. After all, that's what Paul calls the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, right? It's the linchpin. Without the resurrection, we have no hope. And that is glorious. Now, unfortunately, many Christians stop right there. But I want to encourage us to look in another direction. Scripture encourages us to look in when we come to the table. 1 Corinthians 11.25 tells us that a man ought to examine himself before he eats and drinks. Communion is a self-reflective time. It's a time when we confess and we repent of our sins, when we recall our sins to our mind and confess and repent them to God. Now, I want to be clear here again. The motivation is not to make sure you're clean enough to come to the table. I just want to assure you and myself, we're never clean enough to come to the table. But what we do when we look in is we realize once again our dire need for Christ and proclaim our utter dependence on Him. The Lord's Supper is for sinners who see their need for grace and mercy of God. J.C. Ryle wrote this, Self-righteous people who think they are saved by their own works have no business coming to the Lord's table. For what do we declare at the Lord's table? We publicly profess that we have no goodness, righteousness, worthiness of our own, and that our only hope is in Jesus Christ. We publicly profess that we are guilty, sinful, corrupt, and naturally deserve God's wrath and condemnation. And he concludes by writing, Now what has a self-righteous man to do with an ordinance like this? Third, the table asks us to look up. Look up. This is the vertical nature of the Lord's table. This is what we just talked about in, our, in the last point. The bread and the juice remind us and sustain us and spiritually nourish us for the pilgrimage ahead. Fourth, we should also look around. We should look around when we come to the Lord's table. This is the horizontal nature of the table. Most of us, myself included, when we receive the element, what do we do? We bow our heads, right? And that's fine. I'm not encouraging you not to bow your heads but we bow our heads and we're self-reflective. And that's fine. We should look in. But I want to encourage you from time to time to look around. Because there's a horizontal nature to the Lord's table that we have to embrace. Communion is a body event. So, use this time to look around and praise God for the body that the Lord has given you, the church the Lord has given you. Pray for those people who might have their heads bowed, but you know what's on their brow. You know what's going on in their their life. Use this time to savor the fact that we are members of Christ's body here on earth. So we shouldn't be looking back in, up, around, but, but fifthly, we should be looking forward. And this is what Jesus is telling us here in verse 29 in our text. He says, I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. What Jesus is telling us is, He's coming back. He's returning. He hasn't left us here, alone. And that is heavy with hope, brothers and sisters. Every generation has their books, their dystopian novels. Every generation. You know, mine was 1984 in Brave New World. You know, there's Fahrenheit 451. This generation's dystopian novel is The Hunger Games. I don't know if you've seen the movie or if you've read the books. In The The Hunger Games, uh, President Snow rules over a futuristic society in which one boy and one girl, ages 12 through 18, from each of the 12 districts, are selected to participate in a televised battle to the death where one winner is declared. The premise. At one point, President Snow asks his chief games maker, Seneca, why do you think we have one winner? Seneca kind of looks confused. So Snow continues, I mean, if we wanted to intimidate the districts, why not just round up 24 people at random and execute them all at once? It would be much faster. Seneca asks, what are you getting at? And Snow, after a long pause, says this, hope. Hope. is the only thing stronger than fear. A little hope is effective. A lot of hope is dangerous. A spark is fine as long as it's contained. Brothers and sisters, the Lord's table, in the Lord's table, we have a dangerous amount of hope. Scripture tells us that when Christ comes back, everything will be made right again. Everything. All injustices made just, all pain eradicated, all evil exterminated, all regret and jealousy and covetousness put aside. Sin will be eliminated. Satan will be destroyed, thrown into the lake of fire, never to come back again. There will be no more darkness, no more tears, no more hunger, no more worry. We will receive our heavenly reward, the inheritance kept in heaven for us, Peter says. We will have new bodies that can run and never grow weary. We will have a perfect fellowship with each other. We will have uncut, undisturbed, unending, uninhibited fellowship with the triune God. Brothers and sisters, just sit down this afternoon and do yourself a favor. Take, I think it's nine minutes, eight minutes, and read through Revelation 19, 20, 21 and 22. It is heavy with hope. The devil, like President Snow, wants to contain that spark. Always, He's, that's one of his primary battles: contain that spark. Don't let too much hope into this person's life and heart and mind. Keep them away from looking forward. Keep them focused on their on their circumstances. He would have us stare at our circumstances. He would, he would have us live with a half-empty attitude all the time. He would have us ruminate on our have-nots and never-haves. He would have us fail to remember to look forward. And that's why Jesus gave us the Lord's table. So that we would leave every week at this church remembering the hope that we have 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26 says for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes yes look back but don't forget to look forward that's one of the reasons we do it here every week Dietrich Bonhoeffer While in a Nazi prison cell in nineteen forty three, a few weeks before Advent wrote to a friend, quote, A prison cell in which one waits, hopes, does various unessential things is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside. Brothers and sisters, he's coming back, and he's going to open that door. Let's pray. Father God I thank you for your words for how you have encouraged us today for how much you love us that you don't leave us how you said in the upper room that it is better for me to go Lord we don't understand that but we believe it by faith thank you Lord for being with us on this wilderness pilgrimage and giving us this Lord's table this sweet communion so that we can remember that. In Jesus' name, amen.